We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, as Joe read just a second ago. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we really do appreciate you being here this morning. And just to kind of give you an idea, we normally are going through verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been studying in John. We're taking a break to do a little mini-series to study the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, what are those? Why would we do that? The, the five solas really are the pillars of the Christian faith. They capture for us, they serve as placeholders or, or, or large categories or way of organizing uh, the, the essential nature of what the gospel is, that we're saved by grace alone, that it is through faith alone. Faith in what? Faith in the finished sufficient work of Christ alone. And how do we know that? How do we know that it's not by our own effort, it's by Christ and his work and his effort, by the scriptures alone? And why does this matter? It's all for the glory of God alone, not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify God. And so that's what we're studying through this morning. We're on grace alone, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And this morning, what I want us to see is what Paul does here in the text. He highlights for us, the first, the pervasiveness of sin. And it's not the message that we necessarily want to hear. It's not a message that's often proclaimed. It's sometimes not even proclaimed in our churches Uh, But it's necessary, and Paul understands that, and we'll see why here in just a second. We have to understand the pervasiveness of sin in order to see the beauty and the sparkle of the gospel of grace, the good news that salvation is by grace alone. And so that's what we're going to see secondly. And then lastly, I want us to make this, again, intensely practical as we study through this. What does this mean for everyday life? What does this mean for my relationships and and living beyond these walls. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's look first at the pervasiveness of sin. And this is, uh, we can see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Let me read the text, this section again, uh, and we'll dig into this. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're, we're by nature children of wrath, or we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Super encouraging this morning. Uh, definitely the message that we want to hear. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context of what Paul is doing. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia Minor. It's on the coast. It's a major trade route. It's a major city. A lot of people coming and going through the city. What's fascinating about this city is they had the worship of Artemis that was one of the great gods, the Greek gods, and that they worshiped there. Uh, Artemis was the, the fertility goddess, so you can imagine what went on in the temple and you can imagine what they did there. I've been there. The only thing left standing is one pillar. It's probably the size of this stage. Uh, and I've been in the Colosseum where Paul rushed in. We read in Acts, he rushes into the Colosseum and he's He's wanting to proclaim the gospel, uh, and all of the people in the city are cheering and chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, and there's Paul wanting to go in and proclaim the gospel. Ephesus is near another city called Colossae. It's where he wrote his letter to the Colossians. Another city, Laodicea, is right next to that. You've heard of that city if you've read Revelation. It's the city that's neither hot nor cold, but it's lukewarm, that wants to be spewed out, that needs to be spewed out. So this is a major hub of activity in the early church. And Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He later will send Timothy there. He'll be a pastor there. Later, John the Evangelist will be a pastor in Ephesus. It's a major city. It's an important city. There's a lot going on, and there is a 
fledgling church that Paul is writing to. And he's writing this letter, the the letter of Ephesians, to teach them specifically about who they are in Christ, their identity. And so the first three chapters could be said all doctrine, all theology, or another way of understanding what Paul is talking about in the first three chapters is he's trying to articulate who they were in before Christ and who they now are in Christ. And that's why it's all in past tense. Chapter two here is in past tense. That's who you used to be. Apart from Christ, you used to be these things. And then because of Christ, something has happened to you. And that's where he moves to chapters four through six and begins to write the rest of the book about how to live the Christian life. And he uses the phrase, how to walk, walk according to, how to live out this new identity, the good news of the gospel that we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. How do we live this in the world? So that's the context of what Paul is doing here. And he begins by reminding them of who they were apart from Christ. He says, you were dead. And he uses a a word there, necros, and it means dead. It doesn't mean sick. And that's important for us to understand. You don't need a steroid shot. You don't need to take your vitamins. You don't need resuscitation. You are dead. You were dead apart from Christ. You need something more than resuscitation. You need resurrection. You you are separated from God. And that's important for us to understand what he's saying here and what he's not saying. If we lose sight of this our sinful condition apart from Christ, if we think it's just a matter of sickness, then what's the cure? It's just some medicine. I just need a little bit of medicine. I need to drink my OJ, right? Men, that's all we do when we get sick. I need to just drink a little bit of orange juice. I need to take my vitamins. I need to just kind of grin and bear it, or I need to get my shot or get my medicine, and then what I need? I need to work and earn and, and, and live in my own ability out of that. If it's just information... We just need a little bit. What's the cure? If we just don't know enough, we're not familiar enough or understand enough, what's the cure? The cure is is more information, more education. What I need is I need to read more of the Bible. I need to go to another 12 Bible studies. I need to be in another XYZ. I need to attend church more. I need to do more. If it's just a matter of morality, that I've just misbehaved or I've just made a mistake, if sin is simply that, then what's the cure? The cure is just moral behavior modification. I just need an example to follow. And this is actually what the medieval Catholic Church understood Jesus to be. They didn't deny his deity, but they understood that he was the example. And if he's just the example, then I need to live up to his standard. Who is doing the work? Me. I need to follow, I need to do, I need to live up to. And so Paul doesn't say any of those things. That's not what he is is saying that we were apart from Christ. We're not sick, we're not uninformed, we're not just kind of messed up a little bit, we just made a mistake, we just weren't behaving correctly. He says we are dead. We're in desperate need of resurrection, not simply resuscitation. He he amplifies this later. Down in chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about the fact the results of this death is that we are alienated from God. We're separated from God. We are without hope. This is certainly the message to win friends and influence people, is it not? But this this is the message that Paul is 
is communicating to us. This is what he wants us to understand, that apart from Christ, you were dead. You were in need of resurrection. What's important for us to understand is Paul's building on Genesis chapter 3. That the fall, Adam and Eve, man, lifted his fist to God, said, I don't need you. I make a better God. I make a better Savior. I know what's best for me. And isn't that the essence of sin? Every time we choose a lesser idol, every time we choose the little mud pies in the slum, as C.S. Lewis says, every time we're doing that, aren't we saying at that moment, this is what's best for me. That's what's best for me. I know what's best for me. God, what do you know? And that's exactly what the fall, that's what happened at the fall. I make a better Savior, better King, better Lord. I make a better God. I know what's best for me. And the result of the fall was alienation from God, alienation from within. Now shame and guilt and all of these inner turmoil, brokenness happens, and now alienation without. It's why we fight with our spouses. It's why there's rumors and wars all over. It's why the nations rage, as Psalm 2, chapter 2 says. This is the cause of division and divisiveness and brokenness in the world. And if that is the cause, if the issue the, this, uh, is sin and death within me, then I can't look within me for the solution. And that's the major distinction, a major distinction between the Christian worldview and any other worldview. The Christian worldview is the only worldview that says the answer is not within you, it's without you. It's outside you. It's beyond you. It's not within your ability to grasp. Every worldview, every world religion says, no, 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 the, in- the answer is within you. Look a little bit deeper. Believe a little bit more. Have enough faith. Faith more. Try more. Sow your seed. Do these things. Climb the ladder. Every worldview, every world religion says this except for the Christian faith. And so this is not a too pessimistic view of of humanity. This is actually a realistic view. This is the view that the Bible gives us, and it's one that we must understand. And it's important for us to clarify. To be clear here, Paul is not saying, the Scripture is not saying, does not teach, that we are so absolutely, totally sinful that we we could do no good whatsoever. That's not what the scripture is teaching, and that would do an injustice to a biblical understanding of anthropology or man of who we are created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, we're created in the image of God. In, in Genesis chapter 3, it's broken. That image is broken. It's marred. It's defaced, but it's not erased. It's not annihilated. And that's essential for us to understand Because when you get to the New Testament, Paul repeatedly teaches us that you and I must be conformed to the image of his Son. And so what he's talking about is through Christ, in Christ, by Christ, what is broken and marred and defaced is rewoven and restored and righted. It's only through Jesus. It's only by Christ. So it's, the, the reason I make that distinction is because you will encounter, I will encounter, we encounter every day people that do not profess faith in Christ, that do not acknowledge God, and yet they will do, in many cases, far more societal good than even Christians. Why is that? Because we are not so totally sinful that we can do no good. What Paul is teaching is that we are so totally sinful or pervasively sinful that we can do no good spiritual good. Those are two different things. 
and we'll encounter and we will see and you can recount your coworkers, your friends, your family that will do good. They'll give more than Christians. They'll go more than Christians. They'll serve more than even whoever. It doesn't matter. And what, what you're experiencing is that we are pervasively sinful, not completely, totally sinful and unable to do good. We're pervasively sinful and unable to do any spiritual good. This is what Paul is communicating here, that we're, as Psalm 51.5, we're born in sin. Psalm 58.3, we're bent on sin. We're incapable of doing any spiritual good, but this does not mean we're not capable of doing any good. Sin has radically affected everything that we are. The image of God is defaced, but it's not erased. You can read, Paul writes about it repeatedly. He says that our minds are debased, our minds are depraved, our minds are broken, that we're bent on sin. You can go through 1 Timothy, Titus, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians. He's saying this over and over again, that we're blinded by sin, that our hearts are hardened because of sin, that ultimately, he says in Ephesians 2 here, that we are by nature then, children of wrath. We're deserving of wrath. We're deser- we should be crushed. We've rebelled against the, the true king. And what's the only result when every movie you've ever watched, when, when you rebel against the king or the president or the ruler or the whatever in the movie, what's, what happens? It's off with your head. But what does the gospel teach us? It's not off with our head. That's not what happens. When When God stands over us, children of wrath, hand on neck, sword lifted, what the cross teaches us is that Jesus fell on the sword himself. And that's the glorious good news of the gospel. So we're able to do societal good despite our sinful condition. However, what's clear from the biblical text is that man can do no spiritual good without some kind of intervention from without. The answer is not within, the answer is from without. Without, it's outside of us. Paul qualifies this and clarifies this even further about the pervasiveness of our sin. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses can mean the intentional or the unintentional crossing of a boundary. Intentional or unintentional crossing of a boundary. And then you couple that and get a bigger idea when you couple that with sin and this word death. The word sin, you've heard the, the, the teaching before, it means missing the mark. This Greek word here is hamartia, and, and, it, and you've maybe heard the definition of sin is missing the mark. It's, it, you know, we pull the bow back, it's the analogy of a bow and arrow, and we pull the bow back and we're shooting at, a, at the target, but we just kind of miss just a little bit. That's not what hamartia means. That's not what Paul is communicating. It does mean to miss the mark, but the problem Paul is saying is we aren't just trying to aim at the, the mark and the, the target and miss it by a little bit, we have willfully turned in the opposite direction and we are willfully choosing a totally different target and missing it that way. So if you couple trespasses, intentional or unintentional, with willful rebellion, then you see why we are dead in sin. And Paul goes on to clarify not what this means for our lives, the, 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 that we walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the, the little g God of this world, Paul says, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And, and that's what he's talking about here. We're following the, the course of this world. We're blinded from reality. We're blinded from truth. We're blinded from grace. We're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
And then I love this. So, so Paul starts off with this finger pointing, and we don't like that. We don't like anybody putting their finger in our face and telling us what we, and he's saying you a whole bunch. I love verse three. And then he says, and we all once walked this way. So he's, he's not simply being accusatory. He's including himself in this. We all walk this way, not just the lower lesser people, the apostles too. All of us were born dead in sin, separated, alienated, without hope, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We followed our hearts. We used the great wisdom of American Idol and everything else. Follow our heart. Follow your heart. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Again, this is not the most encouraging way to make friends. This is not the most encouraging message. This is yet not the most pessimistic view. This is the most realistic view of humanity. That apart from God, we are separated, alienated, without hope, dead, and bent on sin. If this is the view, if sin is simply sickness, then the cure is medicine. If sin is simply uh, not enough information, then the cure is education. If sin is simply making you know, wrong decisions, then we need behavior modification. But if sin is death, if sin is described in the way that it's described here, then we need absolute, total rescue and resurrection. We need something outside of us. We need to be made alive it's our willful rebellion so that every action now, whether good or bad, still overflows from a dead, rebellious, and sinful heart. Again, we, we will do good, but it will be bent in on ourselves. The motivation ultimately will be bent in on ourselves. Many of us do good things, but think about the motives. Why do you do good? Is it in response to all that God has done for you, or is it to get God's favor or get God's stuff. What's your motivation then? It's not about God. It's about his stuff or it's about you. You are the heart and soul of that approach to relating to God. It's still a merit-based approach. And the gospel is something totally and radically different than this. And so Paul says this is who we used to be. Thank God that's, that's his language here. We used to be this. He's talking about those who used to have this identity, but something has happened in their life, and now they're not this. These are the most dark, depressing verses in the entire Bible, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. But against the dark backdrop of these verses comes the beauty and the glory of the gospel of grace. And we get two of the most amazing words and then this litany list, long line of these phrases that tell us this beautiful good news. Those two words are but God. Why is Paul doing this? Why is he contrasting this darkness with such beauty? He's not contrasting the darkness so that you say, well, I really need to clean myself up. I really need to work harder. I need to try harder. I need to do more. He's contrasting this darkness to show you what was done on your behalf. 
what Christ has done on your behalf. He's contrasting this darkness so that he highlights the power and the beauty and the majesty of what God has done in Christ Jesus on the cross, on your behalf, in my behalf. The focus is not on you. And the focus is not on our past. And the focus is not on our sin. The focus is squarely on who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross for us. And that's what leads us to this unbelievable beauty. Sin is pervasive. And if we're, if we're to be resurrected and freed from its power, we desperately need a power outside of us to come into us and transform us. So by highlighting our sin, Paul is simultaneously highlighting the infinite power and the beauty of Christ. And this is where the, the Protestant reformers began to understand and articulate something. They began to use this phrase, what we need is an alien righteousness. Love that language. It means it's outside of us. Because the world says the answer is within you. And what the gospel teaches, what the Bible teaches, no, 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 the answer is not within you. We don't need more of you. Look what more of you gets. It gets more and more disaster. What, what we need is an alien righteousness. This is how Luther began to understand it, and the Protestant reformers began to, to understand this idea. Here's a, here's a brief, very brief understanding of what and where this came from. Luther is largely influenced by a, a, a theologian, a professor named Gabriel Beale, and his teaching, nominalism, was one of the many streams that infused and informed the early Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Nominalism taught that what we need to do is get ourselves in a state of grace. Hear, hear what is being said here. What we need to do is get, and this is what Luther understood early on, this is his teaching, this is what he was raised and taught. I need to get myself into a state of grace. So what I need to do, and this is what we, you, your friends say it, your family says it, I hear it all the time. God can't love me until I clean myself up enough. God can't receive me until I've contributed something, until I've done something. What the what Beale was teaching, what Luther understand, understood is I've got to get myself in a state of grace. I need to clean myself up. I need to do a little bit so that, and this is the actual teaching, you need to do your best so that God will take over and do the rest. That literally was the teaching. And so this is why Luther ran from mass to mass, from Lord's Supper to Lord's Supper, from confessional to confessional, because he understood, I've got to clean myself up. I, I, Jesus is important, but Jesus is not sufficient. I need to do something plus Jesus, Jesus plus his work. I, I need to do my own work. This is what Luther understood. And so he literally was a religious neurotic, constantly running from running from confessional to confessional. Listen to what one historian has said about this. The unfortunate reality is that for, for Luther, uh, this teaching fell on the wrong audience because Luther had this thing, uh, it's a German word called anfiktungen, it's fun to say, anfiktungen, and it means deadly despair. Luther could not do enough in his own mind. He knew, I could, I, I, what else can I do? I don't know if I've done enough. How much is enough? And so this is what one historian says about his encounter with his mentor. He says, because only actual sins in confession could actually be forgiven, Luther was obsessed with the fear that he might have overlooked some sin. So he would confess to his mentor, Stolpitz, for hours. 
He would walk away and then he would come rushing back with some little foible he had forgotten to mention. At one point, Stoppitz, quite exasperated, said, Look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Go kill your mother or father, commit adultery, quit coming in here with such flumery and fake sins. Loser didn't know if he confessed enough, so he confessed everything. I stubbed my toe. I had a thought. I need to confess. What do I do? Oh, no. Is God going to smite me? He constantly was doing this. And listen to what he says. Then Luther, the next thing, so he went from that to this. Luther was plagued with another doubt. Have I been truly contrite enough in my confession? Or is my repentance motivated merely by fear? How much is enough? If I've got to earn it, if I've got to contribute to it, then I've got to do everything. And how much is enough? And then, have I done it to the greatest degree that I could? Have I done it to the depths of my heart? Have I done, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? He's constantly asking this. And at this point, he was driven to the abyss of despair so that he wished he had never been created a human being. So what was the turning point for Luther? He understood only half of the message of the gospel. He understood verses 1 through 3 of chapter, chapter 2. He understood what Satan accuses each one of us of every single day. When we sin, what does he do? He comes alongside you and says, you are despicable. You're such a, you just messed up again. I can't believe you are so terrible. God could never love you. God could never use you. You're wretched and you're terrible. He's preaching half the gospel. And that's what Luther was crushed by because he didn't see that there was an answer outside of that. He didn't see that there was an answer beyond himself. What was the beginning, the, the, just the little bit of turning point that began to turn the tide in Luther's heart? His mentor Stoppitz. He said, Luther, if you want peace and rest and rescue, look to the wounds of the most sweet Savior. Look to the cross. Look to the nail-pierced hands. Look to the crown around his thorns. Look to the blood running down his face. Look to the, the pierced side. Look to the sacrifice he offered on your behalf. Look to his work. Look away from your own work. Despair of your own work. Look to the work of Jesus. Only the work of Jesus is sufficient. Now, Stoppus would not have articulated that. Luther articulated that as a result of encountering that message. The second death nail in Luther's works-based, merit-based righteousness was he began to study the Bible, as we talked about last week. But particularly, he began to study Romans. He was teaching through Romans in, in 1516 and 1517, and he began to read Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And Luther, despairing of his own righteousness, realizing, recognizing the one thing we have to all recognize, there is nothing within me. I have no righteousness to bring to the table. I'm pervasively sinful. I'm dead apart from God. I, I can't rescue myself. I can't merit it myself. I can't do enough. Luther understood that. And then looking at his own sin, looking and despairing of his unrighteousness, he, he begins to see in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, if the answer's not within me, then the answer, according to Romans 1.17, is without me. It's in Jesus. It's in a righteousness that God provides in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And so Luther begins to write to that end, preach to that end, 
proclaim to that end, go to that end, constantly saying, it's not my, by my righteousness, it's by his righteousness. He is the righteous one. There is my righteousness. He is my hope. I am not my hope. He is. And he learned that through the teachings of Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and texts like this, because he got half the gospel, he didn't get the whole gospel. He didn't see the other side, the beauty of grace, the work of Christ on our behalf. Listen to what Paul says. In, in light of this dark, unbelievable explanation of who we were apart from Christ, Paul says to the Ephesian church, verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He can't even finish that sentence. If you notice, by grace you have been saved in verse five is an interjection in a long sentence. He can't even finish it. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By grace you've been saved. And then he gets on with verse six. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's the second time he talks about grace. In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Can't help saying it again. Verse eight. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man can boast. This is the good news, yes. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. If we only end with verses one through three, then we are doomed. We are crushed. But God, who is rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, provided a righteousness for us, a means for us, a redeemer, a savior, one who will come in and resurrect we were dead, but by God's gracious initiative, he resurrected us and made us alive. We were in bondage to sin, but by God's gracious initiative, he freed us. We were spiritually bankrupt, but by God's gracious initiative, he seated us with Christ. Notice, first of all, when we look at these verses, first of all, God's love is absolutely unconditional. If they were conditional, what should we have received based on verses 1 through 3? Death, wrath destruction, crushing, piercing. But we don't receive that. Why? Because God's love is not conditional. It's not based on our performance. It's based on something else. What else? What is it? It's based on his character and his nature. It's based on who he is. Read Exodus chapter 34. Read Deuteronomy chapter 7. He didn't choose Israel. He didn't go after Israel because you have all of the numbers in the world. No, I did it for my own name and for my own glory. In, in, in Exodus chapter 34, it talks about the character of God, that he is long-suffering, that he is faithful, that he's steadfast and faithful. It's where we get the idea of hesed, which is his covenant faithful loyalty. He's doing this, all of these things, as a result of his character. Notice the flow of the text. This is so important. Notice the flow of the text. We were dead, verses 1 to 3. God rescues and resurrects, verses 4 to 9. And then he talks about we are his workmanship, we are his poem, his artistry, his creation in order to do good works. We live out of an overflow in verse 10. Please don't miss this. Notice that verse 10 does not precede verse 4 and 9, 4 to 9. We were not dead, and then therefore we worked in order to receive grace and resurrection. 
The gospel teaches that radically different. The gospel says we were dead and God worked because of who he is, because of his nature, by his grace, by his mercy. And now we live out of an overflow from that. So we must constantly go back to that source and constantly remember that source and meditate on that source and marinate on that source. We must constantly recognize that we don't do and therefore we're accepted. We are accepted and therefore we do. It changes everything. It changes our motivation for everything. We'll see that in our application. Notice that God is gracious because of his immeasurable grace despite our sin and rebellion. This is exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 5, 8. It's not once we get... Romans 5, 8 does not say, hey, get yourself in a state of grace and then Christ died for you. It, It says, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still dark in our sin, blind in our minds, while we were still in this condition, Christ died for us, despite your sin. And why does he do this? He tells us in in, in the very first verse here, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Mercy is a Greek word, the original language is in Greek, and it's married to that Hebrew word I mentioned a second ago, the hesed love of God. When we studied Ruth, we talked about the hesed love of God. When we, talk, when we studied Malachi, we talked about the hesed love of God. Read Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, you're going to read about the hesed love of God. What does that mean? Hesed is the covenant faithful loyalty of God. Where does that come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 15, where God enters into a covenant with Abraham. And we've talked about this before, but God enters into a covenant with Abraham, and a common covenant practice was to take animals. You can read about it in Genesis 15. They take animals, cut them in half, lay them on each half, let them bleed out. There's a bloody little trough there, and both partners walk through the trough. And what you're saying by doing it, and they would say verbally on the other side of walking through the trough, one partner would turn and say, hey, as I have done to these animals, you may do to me if I don't uphold my end of the deal. You can kill me. You can let me bleed out. The other partner, second partner, walks through, and then they look back and they said, as, I've done to these, as we've done to these animals, you can do to me if I don't uphold my end of the deal. This is not a contract. Contracts are broken every single day. This is a covenant. This is a promise. This is saying, you may do to me, no matter the circumstances, if I don't keep my end of the deal, you may do to me. Here's what happens. Read Genesis chapter 15. Who, who goes through the animals? How many people go through it? There's only one. It's the smoking fire pot, which represents the presence and person of God. What's he saying? Walks through the animal blood, says, hey, you can do to me what I've done to these animals if I don't uphold my end of the deal. But there's not a second person. Why? Because God is also saying, hey, you may do to me what we've done to these animals if you don't uphold your end of the deal. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to the cross where the blood will be shed on your behalf despite your sin. Even though, yet while you are a sinner... So in this way, grace is overflowing from God's character and nature, his faithful covenant loyalty. He said, I do, and I will remain faithful no matter the circumstances, even when you lift your fist to me. It's radical grace. 
that is being talked about. Notice, secondly, that how he does this, and this is so important, how he does this. Notice first what he does and then how he does it. What he does, according to the text here, is he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realm. He, he's marrying us to Christ. This, these are things, Paul is saying, that, that these we should glory in and celebrate. He's made us alive. You were dead, he made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you. You were separated. You were alienated from God. You're an enemy of God. He seated you in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. And notice how he does it. This is so important. He made us alive. How? Together with Christ. He raised us up. How? With Christ. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. How? In Christ. What's Paul saying? By Christ, through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, only by Christ are you ever righteous before God. Here's, don't miss this, don't miss this. That also means everything that is Christ is now yours. Seated in the heavenly realms, you are now, where did Jesus go as his resurrection? He went to the right hand of the Father. You are seated if you are united with Christ. If you transfer your faith from self to him, you are united with Christ. You are seated in the heavenly realms presently, currently. That's your identity. Remember who he's talking to. He's trying to teach them about their identity. That's who you are. All that Christ has is yours. What does Christ have? You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you realize that? If that is, that's your identity if you are connected to, united to, with Christ. You are a beloved son and daughter. That is your identity. That's what you receive. All that is Christ is now ours. His righteousness is now ours. His right standing is now ours. His identity is now ours, beloved son and daughter. These are what we receive as a result of his work on the cross. How does God make dead people alive? How does he change their legal status from being rebels against God to children of God, from being children of wrath to children of God? How is it that God can seat us in the heavenly places and see us as holy and righteous despite the fact that we have done nothing? Only in, through, by Jesus and his work on the cross. So we look to the cross and we look to his wounds. And when we de- do, don't you see that all that is Christ is given to us? We are made alive like him, by him. We are raised from the dead like him, by him. We are seated in the heavenly realms. When God sees us, he sees exactly like Jesus, sees us exactly like Jesus, by the work of Jesus. By the work of Christ on the cross, all that is his becomes ours. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's exactly what he talks about as the motive for giving in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 to the Macedonians, that they recognize that though Christ was rich, he became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. We who are in sin became his righteousness, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And his righteousness, in his righteousness, he became sin on our behalf. So, So all that is his becomes ours, and please don't miss this, all that is ours became his. He, he took on himself willingly the cross that we deserved. He lived the life that we could not live and died the death we deserved. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. He was forsaken. We should have been cast out. We should have been crushed. We should have been forsaken. But what does he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He received, he received what we should, what we were owed. He received this. Please, please, may this not be another academic information session. May our minds be melted by this. May our hearts be moved by this. This is the gospel. This is the heart of grace in the gospel. It's essential for us to understand. This is, I promise, this is how I used to understand grace. Grace is, it's, it, clearly the Bible teaches it's unmerited favor. It talks about it as a gift. That's clearly what the Bible teaches. But I only saw one half of grace. I only saw one half of the gospel. I understood grace as God turning a blind eye towards sin. In other words, I saw grace as him putting, putting, pressing pause on justice. That's not what happened on the cross. He doesn't press pause on justice. He puts justice on display. He displays for you and I what we deserved. But he also shows us what we got as a result of his death. I love this quote by Carl Truman. He wrote uh, Grace Alone. He's talking about the, the five solas and talking on this point. He says, sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. And biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was crushed for our sake. He was wounded for our sake. He was pierced for our sake. He was chastised for our sake. Isaiah 53. And why? Why did, why did God do this? What prompts God's activity on behalf of dead, rebellious sinners that deserve to be crushed? What prompts God to do this? Paul gives us two negatives to tell us what it's not because of and gives us five positives to tell us what it is because of. The two negatives are in verses 8 and 9. Notice what they say. Next slide. It says that it's not because of your own doing and it's not a result of your own works or moral performance. And why does Paul tell us that? So that no man can boast is what he says. Do you know that in the, in the New Testament, this concept of boasting is talked about 39 different times? And Paul uses it 35 of those times. And every single time he uses it, he's talking about it in the context of stealing any opportunity for us to boast. Crushing any opportunity for us to boast. He constantly is reminding his, his audiences, there, there should be nothing you should be boasting in. Despair of your own works. Instead, trust in, look to the work of Jesus on your behalf. So what Paul do, does is... To answer the question, why does God act on behalf of us when we should be crushed? It's not because of our own doing, and it's not because of our own moral performance. But then he gives us five reasons rooted in the character and nature of who God is. Look at these. It's because of his great mercy. It's because of his great love. It's because of his immeasurable rich grace. It's because of his kindness towards us in Christ. It's to display his glory and grace. And what does that lift your eyes to? What does that lift your heart to? What does that lift your voice to? It lifts your voices. It lifts your eyes. It lifts our minds to God and God alone who receives glory, not us. This is the gospel. This is the glorious good news of grace and the work in Jesus. It's because of all of these things. So let's conclude with implications, applications for our lives. Verse 10 talks about that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
In other words, that we are God's workmanship is what it says there. And that word in Greek is poem or poema. Sorry, and it's where we get our idea for poem. It's the idea that we are God's master creation. We are created and knit together, intended to display him to the world. But there are other implications and applications of this. Think about this in terms of rest and assurance. Many of us are like Luther. We are relentlessly trying to please God and earn favor and merit his love and merit grace and pay back what was given to us for free. We do it in a, in a reading. I, we read the scriptures and sometimes we'll miss a day and we're like, God doesn't love me as much. God doesn't like me as much. I've heard it. You've said it. Others have said it. I've done it. God, I, I didn't come to church today. God's going to smite me. I need to be in, I, I need to do more. I need to give more. Talk to someone after the first service. I feel like I, I give because I, I, I talked to somebody just last week. The reason I do so much is because I'm afraid God's going to take my job from me or my family from me. So I, I, I'm, I'm just crushed by this burden. It's real. We still live this way. But think about when we begin to meditate on the glorious good news that we're not saved by merit. We're not saved by grace. We're not saved by work. We're saved by the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. If we're saved by merit, then we will never have any rest or assurance. We'll be just like Luther. We'll never know if we've done enough. The weight of the world will rest on our shoulders. The answer to all of life's questions will rest on us. We have to defend and answer and everything relies on us. And isn't that just tiresome and crushing? But the good news of the gospel gives rest and assurance. On the other hand, if we're not saved by works, then we can't lose our salvation by works. I'll say it again. If we can't earn our salvation by works, then we can't lose our salvation by works. And what does that equal? What does that give? It gives so much rest. It gives peace. It gives exactly what Jesus offers. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are tired and weary and heavy laden. Come to me and take my yoke upon you, my rule upon you, my authority upon you. Why? Because it gives rest and peace. It radically transforms tireless work into into peace and rest and assurance. Think about repentance with the, with the idea of repentance. If we're saved by works, then when we sin, what do we do when we repent? If we got to please God by our works, when we fail, what do we do? We go back to God and we say, God, look, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Look how bad I am. Look how bad I am. And repentance turns into another effort at trying to impress God with how sorry we are. Repentance turns into another thing that I'm trying to do to please God instead of resting in the glorious good news that we are saved by grace. And therefore, when we begin to understand that, we begin to see that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free. And guess what we're free to do? Confess and confess freely. I'm trusting God. I'm tempted to trust in my salary. I'm tempted to trust in my, my retirement. I'm tempted to trust in a job. I'm tempted to trust in, in having things. I'm tempted to trust in looking this way. I'm tempted to trust in knowing stuff. I'm tempted to trust in my, all these things. God, those things are not my hope. I confess that's where my hope is placed all the time. I do it every day. I confess that. And I confess it freely because I know that that's not my hope. You are my hope. The cross is my hope. If those things are my hope, I'm doomed. But if you're my hope, I have peace and rest and joy, hope-filled repentance. 
Think about our pride versus our humility. If we're saved by works, then guess what we get to do? Paul understood it. It's why he said it so many times. We get to boast. Look at what I did. And we don't say it that way, but here's what we do. We say, God, look at what I did for you today. And what are we saying in that moment? You owe me. You, I did good, so you're going to bless me, right? I avoided bad, so you're going to give me, right? I didn't do bad, so you're not going to take away, right? And what we're doing in that moment is trusting and boasting in ourselves. It, it, it's immense pride. We don't see it that way, but it is. It's immense pride. But when we see that we're saved by grace, it humbles us. We recognize that no work, nothing I do could ever please or be my righteousness. Only his work is, is my righteousness. We recognize how desperate we are. And then we recognize how merciful and gracious God is towards us. And we begin to, to see ourselves in right light of who we are before God. Think about bitterness and blame. Man, how much would this transform our marriages and our work relationships and our lives and our world if we understood the gospel? If it is by works that we are saved, then what happens when someone wrongs us? How do we treat them? We begin to make them pay for wronging us. You've got to show you're sorrowful here. You've got to look like you're deserving of forgiveness. You owe me. You messed, you messed up. You did something wrong. And we begin to accuse and we begin to make people pay. Why? Because we think we have to pay. But if we begin to understand the gospel, we begin to see this rightly. We begin to understand how much we've been forgiven, how great God's grace is and, and how great his mercy is. And so then we turn and we say, I can't help but forgive because I've been forgiven so much. The more familiar we are with grace, the more familiar we will be with how much we've been forgiven and the more quickly we'll forgive others. The more likely we'll be, the more we understand the gospel, the less likely it will be that we're good at defining grace but not giving grace. But how many times have you experienced personally in your own life people that can talk about grace but not extend it? I would argue that person is not as familiar with grace as they say they are. And I think a church that is familiar with their sinfulness is ultimately familiar with grace and the gospel, and then the world begins to hear and know about it. So we have to, we have to bury ourselves in these truths. Think about freedom, comparison. Ladies, moms, dads, husbands, men, everyone in the room, don't we constantly compare ourselves I don't have that. I'm not as great a mom as her. I don't make the perfect sandwiches and slice them in triangles for everybody and cut off the crust. I don't do all these things. I don't have all that stuff. Constantly, we're lifting other people up and saying, man, I just wish I could be as spiritual as that or know as much or do this or whatever. And what are we doing? We're enthroning the wrong person. But if we understand that we're not saved by works, then what we do is we dethrone these people and we enthrone Jesus because his work is the only work that counts. Not my works living up to them. Not their works exceeding mine. And I also won't look down on other people. I won't look down on them because they don't live up to my expectation. The only expectation, the only standard, the only work is Jesus. I look to that. Lastly, what that results in is freedom. Lastly, lastly, what it leads to is many of us 
because we think we're saved by works, because we have grown up in this way, I've talked to somebody after the last service that said, I just default to this. We talked about that. I constantly default back to this, and it just robs me of joy. It turns serving into this drudgery. It turns going to service to worship together with others into drudgery. It turns reading the Bible into this thing I have to do. Oh my gosh, there's another day of doing this. It turns service and sacrifice and mission and giving into things that I have to do to please God and what it does is it robs it of joy. But when we begin to understand the gospel and how much God has done on our behalf in Jesus Christ, it radically changes everything. It, it opens up everything. The sun begins to shine a little brighter. I begin to understand, no, no, no. If God has done all this for me as according to what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, then I can't help but read this. I can't help but fellowship with others. I can't help but serve. I can't help but go. I can't help but give. I can't help but do whatever. Insert X. I now do that in joy, not drudgery and despair. All of this from understanding and applying the gospel. Listen, this morning, the good news of grace in Jesus Christ has been clearly articulated. Not because I'm some kind of great articulator of, of the faith. I'm not some kind of great teacher and preacher. I know that this morning the gospel has been proclaimed because his word has been proclaimed. The good news of salvation by grace has been proclaimed. And many in this room, there are many in this room, that have, have understood that they get to God by what they do. But this morning, for the first time, you understand that God has come to you by what Christ did on your behalf. If this is the first time you've understood that, then reach out, cling to Jesus, claim Jesus, wrap your arms around him. He is your only hope. Respond, come home to Jesus. But I understand that in this room that there's a larger majority of people who started with a clear understanding that it's only by Jesus' work that I'm saved. But somehow along the way, you've derailed and defaulted back to, I've got to add something to what Jesus did for God to love me and accept me. I gotta get myself in a state of grace. I gotta earn my, I gotta do my part. And my encouragement to you would be to repent, to confess, to acknowledge all the many ways you try to pay back God for what's given to you freely, to remember the letter of Galatians that Paul wrote to the churches at Galatia. And what does he repeatedly say? Who, what you started so good, you understood the gospel, you got it, but someone cut in. And who cut in? False teachers who taught you that you need to add to Jesus. Jesus' work is finished and it's sufficient. And then he gets to this amazing verse in chapter five, verse one. Therefore, it is for Christ, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not return again to a yoke of slavery. If that's you, then repent, confess, and return to the gospel and to grace and, and acknowledge the yoke of slavery that you have put on yourself. God has not put on yourself, you have. And toss it and take on the yoke of Christ, which is peace and rest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.